I'm Ali Baker. She, her, a lecturer and children's fantasy literature researcher at the University of East London. You're listening to Fantasy Book Swap, where a guest and I swap children's fantasy books and we talk about them. Today, I'm joined by Matt and Nina from my favourite children's literature podcast, Even the Trunchbull. Hello. What have you been up to recently? Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, Nina, what have you been up to recently? Actually, me and Matt went to the theatre together last weekend. And we went to see um, Joyce Carol Oates' Rapunzel After Dark, which is a ballet. Oh, how fab. It was great. It was great. Yeah, it was really, really lovely. Yes, we've actually been like spending time in person together. First time this year? Yes, we've not done that since Christmas, which it feels crazy, but also I think speaks to how quickly this year is zoomed by but we we managed to record an episode of even the trunchbolt in person yeah so lovely when we get to do that we had matt's lovely sister ruby on with us yes yeah oh that sounds awesome only the second ever time we've managed to record in person since the first batch of four episodes that we sort of batch recorded when we first started um because we sort of did those and then fairly immediately went into went into lockdown and then um, uh, and then have lived in different cities uh, for the rest of the for the rest of the time, um, but yeah. So we got to hang out. We went to the theatre. We went to the pub. We recorded podcasts. Uh, saw yeah, Nina's lovely new hat. Well, newish house. Ten months. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that was that was really nice. Oh, that sounds really wonderful. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I've been. I went to um, Fantasy Con. Um, and I actually hung out with humans. It was incredible. Wow. How was that? It was, it was really, really nice. And it was done at very short notice and the con runners did a wonderful job at putting everything together, stayed in the, one of the most peculiar hotels ever, which used to be a perfectly normal hotel until lockdown. And now it's, you like to do things like, oh, we no, we don't do food. What? You're like, well, you're a hotel. <laughs> do they not do beds either? No, they do do beds. The bed <laughs> is super comfortable. Really, oh, the beds are amazing. Best night's sleep I've had in ages. Nice. But yeah, the whole not doing food in the middle of the day when there's a convention of you know two hundred hungry people who actually want to eat food. I mean that's a missed opportunity, surely. That's, that's that seems they silly. They would sold loads of food. Yeah, yeah, yeah but I, I, I mean, I, I presume it's because they don't have the staff, right. which is you know an issue. But yeah, I mean, all the all the staff were lovely, but the you know the whole not doing food thing was was an extremely strange decision. And I think that that hotel has been used for conventions quite a lot because it's a really good size it's got a really good conferencing suite and i think they may have just cooked their own piece name and shame them ali well i don't want to just in case we have to go That's back to work at some point. but how was the actual convention oh it was fab it was it was really nice and um 
I recorded a, a live podcast in front of an audience with Laura Marrow, where we talked about moomins, and oh, that was cool. really cool. And I saw people I only ever see at cons, which was also delightful. And uh, can't wait until next September when we're in Birmingham. So, uh, yay! I've yes. been moonlighting. I'm making a new podcast, Ali. Oh, I'm cheating on Matt. What? I'm just, Very I'm excitingly, just to be fair. Oh, it's a Moomin I mean, podcast. It's... Me and my friend Dave <laughs> started a Moomin read-through podcast. Oh, you have to send me the info on that. I've it's going to be called the Pod Goblin's Hat. Oh, sorry, say that again. I it's going to be called the Pod Goblin's Hat. Brilliant. And uh, I think we might be launching next month, but I don't know. <gasps> well, let me know when you Super do. Super exciting. I'm so excited. So what, what book are you starting with? We started with The Moomins and the Great Flood, which is the first one Tove Janssen wrote, but the last one to be translated. Interesting. Um, and then is it, so is it all going through chronologically? Is that the idea? Yeah, we're going through all of Tove Janssen's books about the Moomins chronologically in order of publication, so that we're doing all the picture books and the chapter books and the comics. And then I'm we'll branch out maybe and do some of her books for adults. We're going to talk about like the computer game as well and the music, stuff like that. And the, yeah, the cartoons are just amazing. Like the, the, there's the Japanese ones, aren't there? And then I have so much fondness for the freaky and um, fuzzy felt ones, the German <laughs> fuzzy felt cartoons. I think my co-host Dave, who is a lifelong Moomins fan and who has a Moomin tattoo on their chest, really doesn't like those adaptations oh really <laughs> i like the theme tune <laughs> uh, the theme tune's gorgeous yeah I, I, i'm very fond of them they freaked me out when i was a young yeah so, <laughs> actually my my stepson got nightmares from watching them <laughs> when when he were when he was about six so they're not supposed to be creepy but they are creepy i think it's just something to do with stop motion it is a bit yeah yeah uncanny valley well, the yeah. books are a bit. I mean, I'm I'm a later and sort of later discovery for me is that is is the Moomins and yeah for kids books they're pretty sort of existentially bleak. They yeah. are. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's one of the things I really like about them because they yeah. are very like folk stories, and so like you have it's all like ah well you know this thing's happened and oh it's a big flood and we might all die but hey that's what happens and then the next book is oh it's a big comet and we might all die <laughs> but that's what happens yeah <laughs> mama oh, will know what to do <laughs> yeah Moon, i oh gosh i so aspire to be moon and mama i i she's just mm. she's very aspirational isn't she with yeah. that handbag of hers i i know that in reality i'm actually the snort maiden but i would love to <laughs> i would really love to be Human mama, be as That's capable. a fun game. I think I aspire to Snufkin, but I'm more actually a Toft. Oh. I think it's probably, probably about I haven't I read them all yet because the conceit of the podcast is I'm discovering them for the first time. Uh, so I'm only allowed to read six chapters ahead of where we are so that I don't right. spoil anything. So I haven't met Little Mai yet, but apparently Dave says that's who I am. So oh, you not? you haven't read any of them? No, um, we've recorded the first season, so I've read The Moomins and the Great Flood and Finn Family Moomin Troll. Oh, no, and uh, Comet in Moomin Land, because we've recorded seasons one and two, but and I'm not allowed to go any further than that. Well, you've read November, because that's what yes. we did with... so that's yeah. a little cheat. 
Yeah. yeah. That's not got any moomins in it. That's true. Yeah. For most of the time, that's true. But no, I'm they're sure not there at all. They're not in it. Yeah. Little Mai's in that one, though. Or Little Mew. Little Mew. No, yeah, the Mimble's <laughs> in that. Little Mai's not. Oh, oh my God, yeah. I'm getting mixed up with Winter again then, aren't I? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, those are the two that I've read, and I can never remember which was which. Oh, uh, I I think if you if you fancy reading something very wintry, then Moominland Midwinter is. I think it's possibly my favourite. They're both very wintry, though, aren't they? Mm, yeah, I, I love Family Moomin Troll as well, but like Moominland Midwinter is is so really... bleak. It's so, <laughs> it's so bleak. <laughs> It is bleak, but it's also fair. I find it very meditational thing to yeah. do. Yeah, that probably sounds really. They're all a bit like no, that. They're all a bit meditative, mean. aren't they? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I really love them, and I, I mean, I'm. I think Toby Toby Onsen's just she's just amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I have a friend who's um, t- really like too ticky as well, so. That always makes me very happy when I read read books. I keep trying to persuade her to wear a beret because I think she'd she'd rock a beret, but also she's uh, she's very like too ticky, very capable person, and you know very practical in ways that I wish I was, but I'm not. Anyway, shall we talk about some books? Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Why about, not? Talk about some books that we're here to talk about. Well, yeah, I mean, we are already talking about books, it's true. But yeah. So um you both chose Slaves of the Mastery by William Nicholson. Um, could you summarize it for me? Who'd like do you to go do? first, Matt? Uh can do. um I can I can have a stab. Go on. Um, so it's the it's the follow on to um, the Wind Singer. Um, so it's the second in the Wind Is Rising trilogy. The Wind on Fire trilogy. The Wind on Fire trilogy. Correct. That's <laughs> what I meant. Um, and so in the first book, um, we sort of start the first book in a single city-state society which is formed entirely on school exams um, in a really sort of restrictive way. And our child protagonists manage to overthrow the sort of people behind this and restore harmonious balance um, to the city. Um. And then the second book, Slaves of the Mastery, picks that up. It's about five years later. Yeah. And basically because the city is now everyone gets on really well and everyone lives in harmony, they're also weak. So no one's manning the walls because no one needs to. They're completely sort of demilitarized. So this um, fairly new rising power in the world called the Mastery swoops in. Um, raises the city to the ground. Yeah, a big army of horsemen um, and takes everyone off as slaves to the mastery, which is this sort of beautiful, 
quote unquote perfect worlds. I feel like it's very based on the Roman Empire, the mastery. Right. Yeah. In this sort of, you know, like it is a slave state. Yeah. Its entire economy relies on going and making war with other places and taking home huge swathes of the population as unpaid labor. Yeah. But also, it's a form of slavery that can be aspirational, like it was in ancient Rome. Like, you might be freed, you might be a freeman. In Slaves of the Master, you don't get freed, but you can have a lot of power as a slave. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you can... People, they sort of really pride themselves on figuring out people's skills and using them to the best of their ability. So a lot of the kind of debate of the book is kind of our protagonists who've been taken into slavery kind of entering conversations with the people who've enslaved them saying obviously i hate you and i'm going to kill you and this this society is awful because it doesn't work for everyone and the people who've enslaved them saying doesn't it what do you like yeah you know all the only thing you don't have is freedom everything else is absolutely mm-hmm. fine um but there's some pretty brutal preventative punishments carried out as well. So just where it starts to get towards a kind of this muddying of the waters to a point that might sort of feel problematic in a book that is fantasy, but is about slavery written by a white guy. But um, the kind of punishment aspect, I think, brings it down enough on a side of the fence that it's very, very clear who the goodies and baddies are. Um, Yeah. So they sort of routinely burn people alive if anyone puts a foot Mm. out of line. Um, The idea is that every day a certain number of basically hostages enter a cage. And the idea is that everybody in the society has someone in that cage every day. So they've got a stake in the population of that cage. And if anybody runs away, Mm. that cage gets set on fire and everyone else has to watch. Yeah, I I never felt when I was reading this book, and I presumed it was the same with the other mm. two, it was very clear to me that even though William Rick Nicholson isn't sort of sort of thumping his hand on a desk and saying, and this is bad and these are bad, bad people, it was very clear where the morality yeah. lay. Mm. These are intensely moral books, I think, and that's part of what drew me to them. So me and Matt both read this series when we were 10, 11, 12, 13. Yeah, Matt? Younger for me. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I probably read read them sort of between the ages of kind of 8 and 10, maybe 8, 9, 10, something like that. This never Um, ceases to shock me when people come on podcasts and say, I read this hugely complex book when I was a younger and I'm like, ah, oh, I didn't learn to read until I was seven. Ah. <laughs> Maybe I'm not. I don't know if I'm misremembering that. Well, we um, are the same age. And I think they came out when we were, yeah, around that age. I think the first one's 2000. So you would have been eight, Matt, if you read it when it came out. Reached me a that, bit later because I was in France. Right. So that makes sense that you were a bit younger than me, Matt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I can't remember precisely. I, it's one of those, as as with a, uh, most of the kids' books that we've gone back and revisited on our podcast, I know that I remember really enjoying it and I remember uh, feelings from it. And I'm mm. actually rereading this one. You've got this whole bit of uh, Kestrel, who's one of the protagonists, mm. on this long sort of desert caravan with this very... Um, 
posh, snooty, uh, veiled princess. Yes. Um, and kind of part of the plot there is this sort of uh, coercive, like this secretive identity swap. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've always remembered that and forgot that it was from this. So it's it's clearly left a really strong impression because I always had these strong but sort of shifting images of that story and could never re- quite place where it was from and it would sort of just hang around sort of in a sort of dream state in my head. And then I started reading this again and went, oh, yeah, of course, it's from, that's where it's from. <laughs> That's where I was wrong. So that's kind of what the sort of space that books I read ages ago as a kid tend to occupy in my head as this sort of weird, yeah. dreamy, non-specific kind of set of colours and images. I um, remember them really well, but I think it's because I read them a lot <coughs> when I was younger. This was one right. of the series that I went back to over and over again. See, I never really did that. I just came through books and, and once I'd right. read them, I'd move on to something else. And mm. Yeah, I... I do reread a lot of things, but that's I've got a really poor memory, so mm. I, I forget plots <laughs> very, <laughs> very quickly, and so it's fine. I'll go back and read some, even a detective novel and think, oh, yeah, I remember. Oh, forget who the murderer is. Halfway through the book, I will remember who the murderer is, but then I can't remember, I can't remember how they were found out, so it's fine. <laughs> I'm like a goldfish. No, it's it's the same with me. It's the same with me. Like whenever we revisit these books, as I'm reading it, each plot point I get to, I'm going, oh yeah, of course. Mm. But I rarely even like the beat before will I go, oh yeah, I remember what happens next. It is like that complete. As soon as it's as soon as it's there, I'm like, oh yeah, I knew that. But <laughs> like Nina or something, Nina can be bad for spoiling books that I'm in the middle middle of reading. So she'll message something with a spoiler, and I'm like, "Oh man, like I knew that, and now you said it. I remember that, that that's exactly what happens." But until you said it, I'd completely forgotten. I'm quite that that's bad because I always we remember lots of details, and I assume everybody else does. Yeah. Like, oh, I remember that cool thing about that book you and I read when we were ten. And Matt's yeah. like, "No, come on." <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's an, a really interesting thing, though how 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 differently people read. I think it's because I struggled to learn to read. Like once I once I realised I could read, I read loads, and I'm you know kind of by the time I left primary school, I had. Uh, reading age of 14 mm-hmm. um, and I was 10 when I went to secondary school which is another weird thing um, but I I think it's because I had to really work at reading as a young mm. child I have really really strong memories of reading you know like oh, yeah. sensory memories of where, as well so I'll remember reading a book and I, oh, I was sitting under a tree and I, yeah. rem- I remember reading, reading yeah. this and, and I you know, it's, it's very, very fixed in my mind, books that I read as a child, but books as I read as an adult, unless I read them lots of times, they're mm. gone. Yeah. Mm. And, and mm. you know, COVID yeah. really did a number on my on my concentration and memory. So, so um, we got to the point where in our, in your kind of re-plot telling about when Kestrel... Uh, Should right. we say who all the main characters are? Because no. I don't think nope. we've done that yet, Matt. <laughs> that <was> really helpful. <laughs> so our main characters are three children. 
Yes. There are twins, Kestrel and Bowman from the Half family, and they have a not at all naff um, psychic link where they can talk to each other with their brains. Yes. Which you just have to accept as part of the premise of the story. It's never explained. It's and then there's their hanger on friend, Mumpo, who is in love with Kestrel. And he went with them when they were all about 10 in the previous story and he became friends with them. So now those three are really good friends. And it's their whole city that gets taken um, into slavery, but they miss Kestrel. Kestrel hides in the wreckage of the city. And so everybody else gets taken on this horrible slave march and Kestrel's sort of following them through the desert. And she's trying to call out to Bowman with her mind and Bowman's trying to sense her. So she's on a slightly different journey to them, that she doesn't go to the mastery. And instead, she runs into this basically bridal party. Mm. There's a political wedding that's going to happen between the Joe Diller of Gang, who's the princess of Gang, the veiled princess, a very silly posh woman girl, really, that Matt was talking about, and the heir of the master, whoever he turns out to be. So these are two young people who've never met each other who are getting married explicitly to unite their two kingdoms. Mm. And so that, you know, it's not that <laughs> it's, it's quite clear that if they don't, the mastery will attack gang, which is, mm. which so at the minute is like the hugest kingdom mm. that has been in the area for yeah. sort of thousands of years. And it's kind of, I think the mastery has existed for about 50 years and we're just these group of nomads Mm. Um, who have suddenly become this m- new, terrifying, rising power. Yeah. Um, I, this is just to interject for a minute. So this is interesting to me because, Nina, when you were saying that you felt like the Master was a bit like the Roman Empire, I was picturing all of this as being like um, sort of the Genghis Khan type people. Oh, yeah. 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 The horses, all that. Yeah. Yeah. So, very much a kind of Russian steppe area. And that the the landscape felt very bleak. Yeah. um, Yeah. Like that kind of area. And yeah. So, that's that's kind of making sense of like a very predatory state trying to take on. Um, another state, yeah, and that that's sort of, yeah. So it's like they're they're the Roman Empire, but with. I think that that kind of fits the geography, as you say. It's sort of it does feel like sort of wide windswept steps on the edge of desert and mountains, yeah. which yeah. is, I guess, what Mongolia is or or, or was. Yeah. Yeah. I think the reason I think Roman Empire is because we have got gladiatorial games. Yes. Oh, yeah. It. I yeah. think he's picked stuff yeah. and put yeah. them in. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, the glad- gladiatorial games is, is quite a common trope in a lot in of children's. To add a little fantasy. bit of drama. It does. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot a lot of, it's very high stakes, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. so and the other thing about the princess is that she seems to be trying to starve herself to death. Yes, yes. This reread, I was very troubled by Cece. Yeah. I, she's my favourite character. I'm going to come out and say it now. I love her. She's got a really good arc. If you go and read the third, mm. Ali, I don't know if you will, but she's got a really good arc in the next book. 
And I think she, what she does in this book, even at the end of this book, is very brave as well. Mm, you know, mm. she is silly and she is overly concerned with her appearance, but how could she not be? Yeah. You know, she's been raised and her entire job is to be beautiful for her whole country. But not be seen by anyone. And not be seen by anyone except her future husband. Like she's been mm. told only to value herself on her beauty. Yes. Yeah. So of course she's obsessed with this. It's very upsetting how little she eats. Yeah. And I think her friendship with Kestrel is quite good for that, actually, in that Kestrel sort of pushes her on this. You know, Kestrel says, does a person not deserve to exist if they're not very, very beautiful? Is is that really? And and she has she develops this friendship with Kestrel that she's never been allowed to have with anyone because she's not yes. allowed to have any friends. Yes. And Kestrel, and she's basically adopted her as a pet. Like they find her on the side of the road. Yeah. Kestrel accidentally sees her face. Everybody wants to put Kestrel to death because she's seen Cece's real face. And Cece's like, oh, no, I'll keep her. Mm. And so she keeps her as, I guess, a sort of maid, a servant, because yeah. her servants are allowed to see her face. But then they develop this really close, lovely girl-girl, you know, teenage friendship that's, mm. you know that Kestrel then ends up instrumentalizing for her own ends. And I think that is something else about this book that I really like is that even yeah. our heroes are very morally grey in places. Oh, yes, mm. totally. I mean, while, while the where the morality lies in the kind of setting and the, and the plot, the characters are fascinating yeah. and not always very likable. Yeah. 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 Even, even Kestrel, who's, who's, you know, for the protagonist, for a large space of the book, is is not very likable at all. Yeah, it's often not. I mean, I love her. I'm very attached to her, but I will give you that. She's not likable. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's very manipulative. Yes. Yeah. But again, you know, they, I think that makes her a, an interesting character mm. rather than, I think, because the, the time that this is written is around the time of, of kind of the rise of, of YA, isn't it? Yeah. Like when, you know, and I was, it, I kept thinking back to Hunger Games. Yes. And in particular about um, Katniss in the Hunger Games and her, her motivation and why her motivation is the way it is. And I'm, I'm kind of hoping that someone's going to say, hey, let's talk about the Hunger Games in, in a future, <laughs> future episode. Um, but listeners it, volunteer. Listeners right in now. Um, but it is very much kind of um Katniss is a very closed off character and you it's not always easy to get in you know, to, even though she's like the, the narrator, yeah. it's very hard to kind of get into her head. She's very guarded. Very guarded because she has to be. Yeah. And so it's the same thing with, mm. with Pestel. She's she's like, well, and so she's the she's the strong twin out of the two yes, of them, yeah. and I think she has to be harder and tougher and more willing to be a bit ruthless because Bowman is so soft. Yeah, yeah, you know? and in a way, that's a responsibility that's been put on her. That's you know not her own fault. She loves Bowman so much, and her relationship with her brother is so important. Mm. And she knows that he's so he goes through the world so unprotected with mm. his heart on his sleeve, and as a result. She's got this like shell that she's got for two, the both of them, really. Yeah, yeah. She's willing to be ruthless for both of them. So and um, so there's also the the younger sister, isn't Pinto. there? Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, she's she's a she's a little madam. 
I was thinking as well the friendship art with uh, Kestrel and CC. Just listen years then. Um, we're thinking about the the book that the other book that we've talked about before when you were on our end, Ali. It's, it feels quite similar to the friendship yes. arc of um, I'm forgetting Dido the names and, now. Yeah, and beautiful penitence. Yeah, 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 yeah. In uh, Nantucket, yeah, that sort of starting as a starting as a sort of functional thing with someone who's very sheltered and mm. uh, daft and someone who's much more worldwise mm. and then mm. that kind of redressing and balancing and becoming much more equal footing. Absolutely. Um, I think let's let's leave talking about the plot there because we have sort of gone on to talking about your first memories of, of reading it. So you, you both think you were about... Um, you know, about 10, 10 i think yeah do, do you remember where where you first encountered this book because i have to say i'd never heard of it before oh it was massive well i i i was really surprised this because i remember it being huge and my memory of it was just that it was one of those books that at that age everyone knew i don't oh. know if i even picked it up in school but it was just like one of those big like waterstones pushing it in the right. YA section. Mm. When we did um, the Wind Singer on our podcast a year ago, and I went into Waterstones and said, "Oh, I'm just looking for the Wind Singer by William Nicholson." And the guy behind the desk went, "Oh, I've not heard of that one." I thought, "What? What are you talking about?" <laughs> but it seems to be this weird. It, it just sort of flared up and then disappeared. It had a again. huge moment and then it sank without a trace. That's so yeah. interesting. I don't, I, we haven't got to the bottom of why, like we have wondered about it a lot because it's the same, like, I think my all my English language books came in a suitcase from my mum who used to go on a shopping trip to Plymouth before every Christmas. So I grew up in France and she liked to get us some English stuff for Christmas. Mm -hmm. So almost certainly the Windsinger came that way. But right. then she will have got me, she will have ordered me the next two, I think, because she saw me devour it so quickly. Mm. So I didn't, I remember like coming to the UK, I think to my grandparents or something. Yeah, it would have been to my grandparents and seeing it all over the shops and like a big poster in a school window. I was like, wow, everyone in this country has read The Wind Singer. And a couple mm. of years later, I saw it in translation in French in France and then it got massive there. So it did, you know, it was really big for a while. I think it did really well in the US as well. So I'm surprised like it never got turned in into a film. Because well, mm. he is a film writer as well, isn't he? Yeah. I think he was one of the main scriptwriters on Gladiator. <laughs> wow, yeah. Which makes sense because he writes really filmically. And, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, uh, I don't know if it, I don't know if it got optioned and then not made and just somewhere in there got kind of. I mean, of it's so buried. big. It would cost so much to make something like this. Yeah. There yeah, were yeah. lots of books around that time, you know, like in the decade between 2000 and 2010, where mm. there was, because there was such a boom in, in young adult fantasy fiction. Yeah. That there were a whole load of things that were optioned as films. And then a lot of them, apart from Harry Potter, yeah. Yeah, a lot of them did quite badly. Well, I guess it had been the same sort of thing that you got in the music industry with the sort of yeah. indie boom that you had record companies with any amounts of money to spend, like anyone got given a first album. Yeah. Like, yeah, give them a first album. So you had this 
huge just kind of splatter shot throwing crap at the wall and seeing what sticks kind of, yeah. <laughs> kind of thing it with the whole music pill. industry yeah 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 so it, I, I wonder if it's the same sort of thing like pre-2008 crash I you think had in the probably is yeah because yeah. some of my favorite books because this was around the same time as the Bartimaeus trilogy which is my absolute one of right. my favorite trilogies of books by yeah. Jonathan Stroud and that was they were optioned for films because they're kind of very much a reaction yeah. to uh, Harry Potter mm. and about and particularly about the social class elements of Harry Potter mm. uh, particularly the second book The Girl Ever's Eye and that that never got made into yeah. a film and I mean Jonathan Stroud's a brilliant writer he's still is writing young adult and children's novels now and um yeah and yet never made into a film but i wonder how into- i wonder how much aragon has got to blame for <laughs> well i think it was aragon and i think it was also there was an absolutely appalling um adaptation of the darkest rising which oh yes no that was terrible oh okay. it was dreadful and no yeah. one should ever ever watch that um, you know, even if you can buy it for 20p from a charity shop, never watch it. They mm. made Will American, lovely. right? Yes. And it was and, and made him older as well, it made him into a teenager. Oh. And Will is very explicitly eleven. It's yes. the whole point of yeah, the book. He has his eleventh birthday right at the <laughs> beginning. Yeah. It's the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> and yet randomly they make him, you know, a teenager. He doesn't Oh, anyway, not not the actor's fault, but it's just awful. And uh, mm. there was another really bad one of um, oh, the Northern Lights was quite bad. That was. I mean, bad. that was a bit later, wasn't it? I yes. think that was sort of twenty tens. But that that yeah. That although great. I do think Nicole Kidman was brilliant in in that. But yeah, the rest. Mm, of the, I yeah. hate everything Nicole Kidman does, so I'm biased. Oh, right. <laughs> It's lucky. I don't think she's a listener. It's okay. <laughs> I, I mean, if she is, I'll I'll tell it to her face. I feel like she acts the way that kids in GCSE act. Like everything she does is this is the face I do when I'm sad. I yeah. I don't. I really don't understand. Her. Matt's she's, an actor listener. They have opinions about these things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also the um, little white horse, uh, the secrets of Moonacre. That's. Terrible. A bad adaptation as well. Oh, and it has the mm. same um this the same protagonist. Oh, what's her name? The one who was the uh who was Lyra in oh, there's my cat. The one who was Lyra in um in uh, the Golden Compass. Yeah, she's she's in it and okay. dreadfully mm. miscast. Yeah. So anyway, yes, I think anyway, to cut a long story short, there are reasons, in my opinion, why yeah. uh, for a lot of young adults. But I think a load of. But I, do, I, do, I do remember this one being huge. I, th- I think I, I'm trying to remember what dragged me because it was just God. I must have ploughed through so many books at that sort of age because it yeah. was the same sort of time, like the Garth Nix stuff, and then oh, the yes. Artemis Fowl stuff, and yes. there was loads of big trilogies that I there was kind loads of rattled of great through. writing in fantasy for young people yes. then. I think. Yeah, like, a lot of it bad too, but like lots uh, of good stuff. But I think this one is. Uh, I, I mean, for want of a better word, the branding, I guess, drew me in. 
um, and oh, this really S. iconic image of the mm-hmm. the S that is like the S folded back on itself, but this shiny metal that looks almost yeah. edible. It looks like molten caramel. Yes. Um, so, I, I mean, it's always Nina who brings this up, and I take the mick because it's uh, an entirely visual segment in an audio uh, format. Oh, I but love to talk about book covers. Let's talk about book covers. So this Let's one's a really interesting one for me because I've got two versions of Slaves the Master here because I, I think Nina got me a copy and then I forgot. You've got this but... one as well, haven't you? No, it's I don't have that one. Naff. No, no, no. So that I don't have that. Okay. So that, mine's naffer than that. So I've got the classic, I need to put my camera on for this, but I don't know. I've got the classic <laughs> original. We will take some photos of all the book, book covers in and so, put them in the show notes. So the, 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 <laughs> the classic original is kind of each of the three um, has just quite plain. This one is like a bed of coals and that S yeah. pendant with the the tail of the S curled right back over its head. So it's almost That's like the email at sign, but an yeah. S. Yeah. And it's just that. And it's really big and bold. The other one I've got, I'm very torn because I looked at it first when that is awful, but then there's something kind of so naff it's appealing. And you do get some images from the book, which I think are well done. So you've got the the monkey cages that they burn people in and you've got the domes of the mastery. It looks like the film poster for Never Ending Story. It's so 80s. So it's this, but do you see what I mean? It's right on the line where it's like, that is, you couldn't argue that that isn't that. Yes. You know, also if you're 10 years old in the year 2002, that is so cool. Oh yeah. 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 Well, I don't know, but I don't know that it is. So we were chatting about this when we did our last episode um, the other day about the Doomspell cover. I have this nostalgia where I I think I'm a slave to this kind of branding where something like this that is nice and safe and simple is exactly the sort of thing I would have gone for as a kid at that age. Something like this would have put me off because it looks like something from a previous generation and it looks like sort of pulp fiction from the 80s. (laughs) Do you know what? I'd be scared of it. I'd be scared of it because it looks like unsanctioned. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) It reminds me of, there is a very famous Athena poster, like Athena was a poster shop when I was, uh, when I was a teen, which has got like a naked woman with her back to the, the viewer and coming towards her is this huge Pegasus and it is yeah. exactly in those colours. Classic sci-fi. Like naked women and fantasy animals. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But that is so that is incredibly shiny. Actually, this edition makes has makes me think of the Hunger Games. Yeah. Well, it's that same thing. Same. It was that whole era of just yeah. like one simple image, like branded. Yeah. There you yeah. go. That's what it is. You recognize it straight away. And I I don't necessarily agree with that but god it works on me mm. I do. <laughs> hey anything anything that was oh, that agreed. Really clear I thought imagery, they so cool yeah 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 i'd be straight for that so it's it might even just be something that i saw in waterstones um because mm. i used to get book vouchers all the time i'd get them through school or i'd get them for christmas and birthdays mm. i used to have at any one time at least 20 quids worth of 
book vouchers at a point in the <laughs> not so recent past now where 20 quid would buy you a couple of trilogies. Yes. Um, yeah, so it, it, I probably just saw, I, I, I think I remember reading the first sort of little chapter of the first one this sort of mini prologue chapter mm. just stood in a Waterstones and I think buying it off the basis of that. Um, so I think that's probably where I first mm. first came across it. Ruby loved them, didn't she? Might so we shared, I, well, I can't remember who, which of us introduced it to the other or if we both kind of discovered it at the same time. I guess it's because I'm a couple of years older, it's maybe more likely that I started yeah. reading it and passed it down here. But I think we might have just been reading it at the same time. But yeah, mm. we both... We did both grow up. I always read these as a bedtime story by my mum. Oh, wow. I mean, they're kind of intense for that. Yeah. yeah like, but my mum, to her credit, kept reading to all three of us well into our teens. That's right. Cool. Okay. Um, yeah. Because there's a there's a five-year age gap between me and my youngest sister. It's like mm. me and the middle one never really aged out. As long as there was one little enough, we would all pile into the bed. Mm. Yeah. And mm. my mum... I mean, my mum is quite traumatised by this series. She thought it was very violent. Oh, it is. Um, and it it is. really is. Yeah. Well, I but think also, all of three threat. of us loved it. There's a lot of threat in it. I mean, like, there's always, there's there's a lot of, well, it's very high stakes, isn't there? Yeah. So even though, you know, there are people wanting to, to rebel against the mastery, mm. there's always that danger that if they do, calamitous stuff is going to happen yeah. to people they yeah. love. I mean, but then they, uh, there's pretty graphic description of people. Yeah. So they have they have these cages. So while while they're still marching back to the mastery, they pick them up. They well, they've raided Aramanth, the city, mm. put them all in slavery, and then while like right at the beginning of the march, they've got one of these cages. Runs off. Runs off. No. Yeah. So even before that, even before so that. like as they're marching them back to the mastery they bring out these cages and stick a load of people into one and then just wait for someone to do something out of line and mumpo one of our lead characters his dad is in one of the cages and he runs up and he's sort of rattling the bar saying let him out and then because he does that the leader of the people who's caught them is like cool there we go there's my reason and sets the cage on fire cage yeah um and actually i think it's just Mumpo's dad in it it's just one guy in it yeah and they he describes quite graphically how he climbs up the bars which is why they call it monkey cages yeah. and then the guards will go around wrapping his knuckles so that he falls back into the fire and then eventually he just sits down and lets himself burn to death yeah so that's kind of smell yeah Ooh. it's really graphic so that's kind of set up and then once they get to the mastery they're kind of the first day there Bowman and his mate Rufy Blesh are sort of saying, right, how are we going to escape from here? That's sort of, mm. and they kind of look around going like, the walls of this place are really quite derelict. There's gaps all over. We can definitely yeah. climb up over there. Like we can get, I mean, you know, we're not going to get all of us out in one, but dribs and drabs, like this, their security's naff. And then without saying anything, just part of the routine of arrival, the guards bring up one of these cages and go, cool, one from every family and we pop. There we go. So your day in the cage today, and then we'll switch around tomorrow. And they're like, cool, that's what the yeah, walls are. Why you don't need walls. Um, yeah. And then Rufy does run away 
he tries running away and because he's run away he's an escaped prisoner again without saying anything no warning they're just like all right everyone come with us come down to the bottom of the hill um you're going to watch while we set your family on fire yeah and they just and it happens there's no kind of like i think you expect because it's a kid's book you expect that moment where it's like someone rushes in and saves the day yeah, yeah. it doesn't happen but it doesn't happen they just die yeah. um it's pretty brutal like it, it, like rereading it yesterday I got to that bit and they're like caught in my throat a bit like it gets you it's it it's grim it's really grim <laughs> um, we talk about hot mumpo well i mean if we're going to talk about hot mumpo we talk about i mean a lot like the uncomfortable sexualization in a lot of this book on rereading like there's some bits where like william nicholson is dying to write some erotic fiction maybe he writes Um, his own erotic fan fiction who knows I don't know if he's like if he's got if he's got a sideline in erotic fan fiction. There's obviously no place for it in kids' books, and he knows that, but only just. I mean, only just the way yeah. he describes the dance at the end. I'm like, Ooh, Jesus, was, will go and have a sexy, cold shower it? and come back in a bit. Like, blimey, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I, I I think at the beginning of the book. It's like really clear that the Kestrel's not into Mumpo yeah. at all. But there's a lot of kind of him moping around about being friend zoned. Yeah. It's a bit yeah, like Yeah, there is a yeah. lot of that. Yeah. yeah. Lot of that. Absolutely. And the politics of it is kind of naff. I mean, it's very very early noughties. There is a certain mm. like he's the male equivalent of like the the geeky girl who takes her glasses off and suddenly she's hot. Yeah. Like he comes out as a gladiator and he's like tanned and toned and got and like oiled. Oil, oiled all over a six pack. And like Kestrel's like, mm, blind. Yeah. Mumbo's grown up. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's not. She's never really into him, but everybody else is. She gives him a look. Like it's yeah. definitely oh. written that she's like, oh, yeah. Right, Mumbo. Yeah. Come on then. <laughs> But there's also yeah, so this... some things haven't aged well, for sure. Yeah. And um, there's also the thing with, with Kestrel's little sister and her being into mum Yeah. She's very little. Seven, yeah. yeah. I mean, I thought that was written quite well, because that I was quite that was believable, quite well. that she's just this little seven-year-old who's fallen in love with yeah. like an but older teenager. That happens, and it's never inappropriate. It's never no. like mum going to reciprocate. No. Yeah. But it's the way that the way that she reacts to her sister. Yeah, but I think that's very real. Yeah, like you could have him, and you don't even like him, and he's like the best person in the world. Yes, and you know, Pinto has grown up with her twin brother and sister having special powers, and they're saviors of the city, and they're the special ones, and she's the one who was only a baby when it all happened, and everybody thinks she's a baby, and everybody Mm. underestimates her. I've got a lot of time for Pinto. Her arc's cool in this book as well. Like she, she, yeah, is up for kind of sacrificing herself by the end yeah um, she does a lot of growing up in this book yes yeah, she does yeah that's that's true i would love to have a story from her perspective actually she's a lot more in the third book it's a lot more about oh is her. she in that case yeah. i yeah. have to read the third book yeah okay Do you, let, shall i read a bit from this uh this dance do. at the end yeah. so this is uh 
Well, I don't know how much we want to give away in terms of plot, but one of it's sort of a weird plot. Like, not a huge amount happens. There's a lot of um, build up to a big yes. final event. It feels a bit like some of Shakespeare's plays, where it's kind of just slowly, slowly things are kind of yes. these two plot lines, and then there's a big convergence at yeah, the end. The, the pacing is is quite interesting. I really like it, but it is kind of. It's sort of it is just the A story and the B story, yeah. and mm-hmm. then they meet. Yeah, that's then that's it. I mean, that um, is a formula that works for me. I love that, but it is very yeah. simple. Me, no, I think it's great. But yeah. yeah, so we've got we've got this dance that is like a thing throughout it, and it sort of feels like it's kind of based on the tango. It's this like very it's called the tantaraza. Tantaraza, yeah, and it's this very sort of primal, sensual dance that it's is the supposed first to be dance part for of the, the bride wedding. and groom. Kestrel's doing it instead. Oh, that that comes in quite early on. I don't think that's yeah, much of a spoiler. Yeah, because Cece's rubbish at dancing. Yeah, so Kestrel swapped places with uh, Cece and she's taking the dance. I'm just going to give the end of it. There's much more build-up than this as well. Uh, but the end of the dance goes, she felt his strong arms around her as she fell back, confident that he would not let her fall, and felt his beating heart as she rose again, her, pre- her breast pressed to his chest. She spread her arms wide and he lifted her, and as she dropped to the ground, feeling almost weightless, the broken drumbeat began again, the sound of startled birds crackling up out of bracken, clacker, clacker, killer, clack. And together, within the same heartbeat, they exploded into free flight. One mind, one song, two bodies in motion, precise poise and total abandon, melting together in a dance that was one long, unfolding embrace. In this state of grace, Kestrel knew there were no rules, no limits. Her body could do anything because everything it did was beautiful and necessary and right. She danced like one who falls from an unthinkably great height. To fall truly, she need do nothing except not resist. And so smiling, glowing, lovely, she fell towards the climax and then had a cigarette, presumably. Yes. I, you know. When I made a cup of tea. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get, you know, you know, I guess kids don't pick up on that kind of thing. No, I mean, it's a ve- no. very nice description of a dance as well. But yeah, it's like, oh, dear me. <laughs> they've consummated the marriage <laughs> sure yeah yeah it's beautifully yeah. written absolutely and i mean i i do i'm really glad that you picked this book and introduced it to me so yeah okay well let's move on then to city of the play god by sawat chudder and yeah. i shall read the blurb Okay, and we'll talk about the cover, actually. I have problems with this cover. Why is it the last scene? I know. <laughs> there, Yes, there is a bit like, I've just, I've seen this, um, oh, well, it was the uh, the podcast, uh, I forget their names, Arlie and someone else. The who Boy did Who Hasn't the, Lived. Yes. yes, where they were yeah. making the point that a lot of the newer Harry Potter covers Give the away cover, the like the cover of Chamber of the Secrets shows yeah. him fighting the basilisk and of and the phoenix coming in. It's like, <laughs> come on, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this is uh, this this um, is a Disney Hyperion uh, imprint. Um, Thirteen-year-old Sick just wants a simple existence. 
going to school and helping at his parents' deli in the evenings. But all is blown to smithereens when Nergal, the Mesopotamian god of disease, comes looking for him, thinking that Sick holds the secret of eternal life. Turns out Sick is immortal but doesn't know it, and that's about to get him and Manhattan in deep, deep trouble. Sick's not in this alone, with Bellet, the adopted daughter of the goddess of love and war, and a former hero named Gilgamesh on his side. What? They Why must... is all these spoilers on the back of I this book? I know! They must conquer sly demons and treacherous gods to retrieve the flower of immortality. Come on! And save your... They've, they've given away that it's the flower? Yes. God, I'm glad I didn't read the blurb. Because... I mean, to be fair, I did read the blurb, and then during the course of the book, forgot the blurb, and then got to the end of the book and read the blurb again and went... It's good. But, <laughs> but yeah, for anyone like Nina who doesn't immediately forget everything they've written, it would be, yeah, yeah. A bit of a... No, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be miffed if I was Sarwat Chadder and they put that on the back of my book. Yes. I, I am very glad yeah. that I also didn't read the blurb because the, the reason I picked this book and wanted to read it was specifically because I really like Sarwat Chadder as a writer. Uh, he's, he's, um, He's never, I think, got the due that he deserves because mm. I think he was a little bit ahead of his time in terms of um, own voices stuff. Uh, and I'm really glad mm. that Rick Jordan, um, who uses his powers for good. Um, he does, doesn't he? He's an, I really admire him, has picked up uh, Sawat and asked him to, to write this um, book about Mesopotamian um mythology i think it's a wonderful book but you know let's let's get into it yeah what what did you what did you both think of it so i i i kind of completely love it i've really really enjoyed it there are problems with it which are the same kind of brand of problems that i had with percy jackson which mm. i read recently for the first mm. time as well because we've been thinking about doing that for our mm. podcast so i was kind of reading it going oh cool it's exactly the same plot as percy jackson um but with a different pantheon of gods yeah um and a protagonist who's brown rather than white mm. and i was like cool that's fine i'm totally totally happy with that um and i was like oh and it's exactly the same political hiccups yeah. as percy jackson as well which is namely um kind of all baddies have scars on their faces, mm. etc. And are ugly. And yeah. are ugly. Yeah. yeah. I Which... yeah, I think it's a fascinating read. It was a fascinating read for me because in some ways, because I've read so much YA fantasy, I could see way ahead to each plot beat. Like I knew mm. exactly what was going to happen. But you know, that's not a problem with the book. Oh, I so didn't I'm not care. a 13 year old boy. I haven't got a problem with that. It'll be new to them. But also yeah. within that very tight formula, it's incredibly surprising and creative within mm. those really tight strictures which i thought was really interesting like i you know i did guess about the flower and i did guess what was in the portfolio and what was going to happen with dode like i saw that coming because oh, i didn't i you're didn't loads better at me <laughs> than me at that kind of but thing. i thought the stuff especially the stuff to do with religion islam and mm. um pacifism and the sibling relationships and the immigrant experience, that is the stuff that was new to me. The story Brilliant. shape, very familiar, but like 
all those personal touches that he's put in, I thought mm. he did really well. But also things like reclaiming stuff like mm-hmm. um, jihad, yes, and explaining so that. And I was I was reading it thinking that would have been so so useful because reading it now, I've kind of already found like had experience that or bits of learning that have taught me mm-hmm. that that jihad has been completely misappropriated and what its sort of more accurate meaning is. But reading that as a 12, 13 year old, like surrounded by an environment, particularly now of like yeah. all of this, like the laws, which basically like encourage kids to spy on each other in class yeah. and sort of be like racially profile their classmates. If you then had this book that would just, and it doesn't even spell it out for you, but there's enough there for you to go, ah, that's yeah. what that actually means. It yeah. just, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really it's a force for good it's a positive yeah thing. i really liked the use of arabic in the book as well mm-hmm. and like yeah. while there's a glossary it's perfectly obvious what yeah. words mean yeah. Um, yeah i mean a lot of them i've heard of because of of um working in the areas that i've i've worked in um but you know words like yalla and mm. and mm. um so on but I really, I liked the way that that's, they're quite naturally dropped into conversation, mm-hmm. the way that people do, if people have, if people are bilingual, yeah, you just drop words from other languages into yeah. your everyday conversation. I'm sure you, I mean, I'm telling you this, Nina, and you're, you're bilingual, but that, that kind of thing that happens. And um, I thought there was, I mean, at, at points I found the kind of wisecracking stuff a little bit too much. I found that a bit much. <laughs> but on the other hand, parts of it were really funny. It was yes. just such good fun. Yes. And it was it seemed to, to really fly in the face of the idea of what you are and aren't allowed to do with dialogue yeah. in a book. It felt like reading a comic or watching a film. Yes. It was just like joyfully after. But it's great dialogue. It's really funny. And the bit, um, my favourite bit in the whole book the bit that actually made me laugh out loud was the bit with the um, the kebab sauce, <laughs> like the bit that the way this kebab sauce kept coming back. The Baghdad sauce, the end, yeah, the Baghdad sauce, and in the end, is used to defeat a demon. Yeah, just hilarious. Oh, that's very sort of like Mars attacks, isn't yes. it? Like sort yes. of the granny's song is the thing that makes the head blow up. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just I really enjoyed that. And I found the relationship. Well, let, let's not go there now. Let, let's go on and um, talk about. Uh, we've mentioned a little bit about politics, but um, I one of the other things I really like about Rick Riordan's books, and the thing I like about Percy Jackson actually, is that Percy Jackson is at the same time a chosen one, which is something I slightly have problems with. Yeah. But it's also um not a you know, the, the not a wealthy kid. Mm-hmm. He's his mum's yeah. a waitress and you know, he's he, uh, in the first novel he's living in, in um fairly poor housing and Yeah, you know, we were we're talking about this because we did a we did a episode of a sort of rundown of kind of schools in books and mm, we were talking we about the yeah. English thing of to have a public school, like a magic in a school, yes, 
it's always a really posh private yeah. school and saying Percy Jackson was such a nice antidote to that and maybe yeah. manages to work because it's American that you can have this kind of boarding school fantasy setting with a work it doesn't reek of poshness yeah. yeah yeah I would say though that I, I actually meant to email you or tweet you about this because I think you should read The Demon Headmaster by Gillian Cross oh uh, I have yeah you not okay. I've watched that, it. I've watched it when they televised it uh, yeah. when I was little. Yeah, because that that's set in a comprehensive school. Yes. I mean, I suppose it is. It's science fiction rather than fantasy, and I think science. She's sweeping generalization time. Uh, I think science fiction has less of a problem with with lost princes and princesses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fantasy has got a big problem with those. Yes, but you know, Secunda uh, Secunda is, is a lost prince. Yeah, but he also works in the deli kebab shop. Yes, and the the experience of his parents who were refugees is very like front and foremost. And also, it comes out near the end that Daoud is a refugee as well. Yes, um, mm. and those relationships, as especially when they go to the masjid and yes. do what do they call it? Um, not a soup kitchen, the kebab kitchen. Yes, where, I love that bit as well. Yes, I love that. I I'm just looking was... at this now because this is one of my favourite chapters. Sorry, go on, finish what you The one saying. at the masjid? Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was such a loving look at Islam, you know, like that sort of... So um, Secunda brings Belat to the masjid because basically they've been ditched by Belat's goddess mother who's decided yeah. she's to solve the problem without them. There's nothing for them to do. And he makes the point like, if the god of plague is somewhere in Manhattan, he's not in your mum's fancy shops. Yes. He's where the poor people are. We're going to mm -hmm. go where the poor people are. And if we can't advance, you know, the big plot problem of Nergal, god of plague, we can at least help some people. And that is a value in and of itself. I thought that was really strong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really liked that bit. And I think that um, it kind of takes away a lot of the, you know, the, Ishtar and Bellet and their position in the book in relative to Daoud and to Sekunda actually kind of dispels a lot of a lot of cult cultural images of Islam mm -hmm. and how women and girls are considered yeah. Yeah, yeah, within yeah, Islam. Definitely. And I, I appreciated that as well. Well, I'd, I'd, that's, I'd sort of pick that out as one of my favourite bits because it's got, as I was going through it, going, ah, cool, that's my favourite character. I'm looking forward to her appearing again. Oh, and she doesn't. And come she back. never does. So it's yeah. just this really, really interesting What's girl her name called again, Ada. Yes, so I've I just really been like clicking her. through to find it. So it's just this. I th it seems homeless girl who Sakanda knows from this sort of food kitchen who has information and is, but is she's constantly ready to scarp her. Mm. So Sakanda's treading really carefully with her and kind of trying to get Bella to shut up and not put her foot in it. But this girl Carry is so well, so well sketched for having like minimal dialogue, just this really interesting little kind of sort of street urchin cameo yes. of someone who knows, who has that kind of underground knowledge. And yes. I was so ready for her to come back and kind of play a part in the ending. And she, I, part of me likes that she never does. I love, I, I think what I love is, about that is that for a character that is such a bit part 
to the plot. She's so well sketched, mm. but oh, I'd happily, I'd happily read a whole book with. Well, so much is as well, you know. Um, so much had is, um, I think, has written. The, he's written a sequel, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know whether there's going to be a third, but maybe she will come back in the future. But we should ask him mm. to put her in the third one. Let's do that. So what? Please put Ada in your future books. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, I really liked her as well. I thought she was a, also an interesting depiction of possibly disability, possibly mental illness and trauma. And I yeah. thought the way that the masjid takes care of her is really interesting because Secunda says there have been several attempts to try and sort of capture her, right? Like put her yeah. in a home mm. somewhere, you know, put her in touch with police or, you know, and authorities and stuff. People have tried to go through the more traditional structural mm. things that would happen with a homeless child and she doesn't want any of that and they've decided to respect that mm. and to let her come and have her food and not really force any sort of intervention on her that she doesn't want i yes. thought that was really interesting and really good yes i i appreciated that too um and actually the way that bit of that section is about um it's very respectful of of the the homeless people mm -hmm. and it is not kind of done as as you know it, it's not done preachily no it, or rescuing at all no. do you want a little do you want a little extract yes please um uh, let me introduce you i said to bellets as we approached ada there was a moment where i thought she'd run she'd done that a couple of times but then she relaxed until she saw Bellet. Hey, I said, trying to be as casual as possible. Been looking for you. Ada stood there, encased in her coat of patches. Some were wallets she had decorated with shiny candy wrappers. Others were sequined purses she had found. She had glued, sewn, or pasted them on as outer pockets, and in the sunlight she shimmered as if dressed in fish scales. Like a crow, Ada liked shiny things and with them she had transformed her dull, ragged coat into a sparkling work of art. She had never told me her age, but I guessed she was only a couple years older than me. We all kept an eye on her, but she wasn't interested in getting too close. Ada is happy to see sick. Then she looked over at Bellet, wrinkling her nose. Ada is not happy to see sick has brought someone else. And salam to you too, Ada, I said. This is Bellet. She's my friend, apparently. Salam alaikum, Ada. Bellet held out her hand. It's good to... Ada looked Bellet up and down, clearly not impressed. Is Bellet Sick's girlfriend? Sick could do better, much better. Your friend's remarkably rude, said Bellet. I like to think she's refreshingly honest. I steered Ada towards the kebab table. What do you want, Ada? It's Saturday, she said firmly. One Saturday special coming right up. I just, it's such a great character yeah. description. Yeah. Did she remind you of Momo, Matt? Because suddenly with you yes. reading it like that, yeah, I'd not thought that, but actually now you say that, yeah. Yeah, spikier, but mm. similar. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, yeah, I agree. I think I think she's a lovely, a lovely character. Which are your which is your favorite character from well let's let's say let what's your favorite character from City of the Play God? Who do you like best? Dowd. Ada. Ada and mm. Dowd. Why why do you like Dowd, Nina? For me, 
especially because I knew that we were reading this in conjunction with Slaves of the Mastery, I was looking for parallels. And I feel like the story that Sarwat Chadha tells with Dawood is sort of an archetypal story that is usually given to a woman. Yes. In mm. that, you know, he's constantly being judged by Secunda for being vain and for caring about how he looks and for wanting to be a movie star. And therefore, at least through our narrator's eyes, we're constantly underestimating him and judging him, even though I I do think Sarwat Chadha deals with this a little bit better than William Nicholson, because William Nicholson, it feels like, mocks Cece directly, whereas mm. Sarwat Chadha has Secunda mock Daoud, but then he has other characters keep tell Secunda, uh, you're He's great, actually. He's actually a really good guy. guy. Yeah, like, yeah. Why are you like there's a Secunda's got a lot of toxic masculinity going on with this, I think, with like the idea of a man being pretty and caring about being pretty, mm. um, and not able to see past this trait of Dawood's. Whereas we know from the beginning that Dawood was a really good friend of Muhammad, who was Secunda's older brother mm. who has died before the book starts. Like, this book is also shot through with grief. For yes. Muhammad, you know, all the way through. Really right well written grief as well. There is talking to Muhammad in the kebab shop well, as he's locking up and cleaning up. He's sort of talking to him in his head all the time. Mm -hmm. And it says, you know, he's been grieving this brother for two years. And Dawood moved into his brother's room, which Secunda really resents. But Dawood did that to look after Secunda. Yes. Because Mo asked him to. Mm. You know, mm. Dawood's a really mm. good guy, actually. I, and he has a similar arc to Cece in that Cece is also this silly vain character who then mm. sort of has a bit of a turnaround narratively when her beauty is ruined. Mm. And the same mm. thing happens to Dawood. He's pretty, he's pretty, he's pretty, he's pretty. And then something happens to his face and then he's a hero. Yeah. Which I find quite interesting because I think that Dawood is, I think because he's Mo's friend, we know, we sort of know that there's got to be more. There to must him be, yeah. Than than just just being handsome, yeah. And but sick I, isn't open to that. No, sick isn't open to that. But then sick's kind of his fixation on Mo kind of I think makes him resent any other relationship other than a familial relationship. Yeah, yeah. But we we do see. That actually, in other parts of the novel, Dawood is the one that's moving the plot along. Yeah, mm. you know, it's Dawood's relationship with Ishtar that that kind of gets mm -hmm. gets um, gets sick, sort of um, into the house, and you know, getting mm. getting um, her help and so on. And he sort of paves the way with Bellette a little bit as well. Yeah, and um, so yeah, we well we we see that he's more than just his looks. Which I think we don't necessarily We see. don't with Cece. William Nicholson mm. handles this much worse. I tell you mm. what, having just done a Moomin's podcast, Tova Janssen does this much worse with the Snork Maiden. Yeah. There is mm. exactly the same plot in um, Finn Family Moomin Troll of beautiful, vain character, has her beauty ruined in some way, and then is really upset about it, and then the, the book sort of punishes her for caring about how she looks. You know, this yeah. is a very sort of archetypal woman's story. And I think it's yeah. really interesting to have given it to a man. And I think mm -hmm. it's handled really well. Um, and Bellette is so uninterested yeah. in her looks yes. and, and, and isn't punished for it either. Yeah. And that, that I think that's that's a really wonderful thing. 
So tell us yeah. why why Ada's your favourite. Well, I just want on well, I mean, for all the reasons I just said for on Ada, I I just wanted wanted more from her. I think she's such a well drawn mm-hmm. character who's in it so little. But I just there was this instant appeal. I was like, oh, I really like you. I want to know your deal. Um, yeah. And I guess maybe it's part of the point is that you don't get to find that out. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say on Dawood as well. Like it, it, what what we get is something we keep coming back to on even the trunchbull is this seemingly reoccurring trope. Yeah, this trope and kidlet of um, actors appearing as as figures of fun because they're actors, which I think is so funny. It's like this very uh, writerly rivalry or kind of amusement with disdain with those as, who need the laughter of the crowd as as being these silly people but who often end up being not the hero but the sidekick or the person who wins through mm. and sort of you know i think Dawood is so integral in the day being won um it's one of the best ones i've seen i think it's a a, a kind of pretty on the nose, but pretty accurate depiction of like a lot of actors' sort of mindset, but yeah. but it's it's quite gentle with it as well. It's sort of yeah, I don't know. It was I yeah, I I enjoyed it. I thought it was and funny. I think that so much others actually what he's using those for is to criticise the way that mainstream culture. Yeah diminishes um people of color mm-hmm. yeah because, definitely definitely yeah because yeah. There, there's that point you can only ever be the terrorist you yeah. Can, yeah you can only be yeah. a terrorist and then there's one point where like his agent phones him and he's all excited it's like yeah 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 i've got i've got and yeah. there's a there's a new opportunity for me and it, it's yeah. it's and it's a drug dealer it's to be a Mexican yeah. gangster. Yeah. And actually then when he loses his looks and he sort yeah. of there's a comment he says about like, oh, my agent says it'll be good because I can get more villains or something. And he's kind of, yes. Yes. it's sort of, it's very self-aware. And actually this is where, because a lot of the um, daft actor trope you get in Kid Lit, one of their defining features is their lack of self-awareness. Mm. Whereas yeah. Dawood's almost the opposite. I think he's really appealing because he's very like, He's very self-aware about his own ridiculousness, yes. but also about the societal reasons and needs for that. Like he wants to be an actor. So he's like, I'm, you know, I've got 15 years until I'm too old to do this. Tops. Yeah. Like I need to look as beautiful as possible. And I think maybe part of the difference for that is he's an actor living and working between New York and California. Yeah. So, you know, between, you know, Hollywood, whereas most of the kid lit actors we've come across before are like old, lovey mm. English Amdram types where it's like yeah. the main thing is, oh, you don't quite realise how ridiculous you are. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but Dawood's very sort of like, this is the game, you've got to play it. Um I mean, I did find some elements of that troubling, especially the talk of dieting. Yeah. yeah. Carbs and yeah. cutting what he's eating. I, I really, yeah. I don't like it in William Nicholson, but at least it was 20 years ago. I do yeah. find that sort of talk in a YA book really inappropriate these yeah. days. The beauty yeah. politics, I think, yeah. like inherited directly off Rick Riordan or common between them. And that's, but I, th- I think it's more, it's more palatable in this one for me than Percy Jackson, because there is that sort of 
twist with Dode. There is but some self awareness with Dode, but, but, I still but found there's it, a like, lot of it difficult. that is, yeah, yeah, it's not well. Great. And with the descriptions of the gods as well and of the sick yeah. people, I found it so interesting because. Did he write this before COVID, Ali? Do you know? Yes, he did. That's amazing. It is incredible, isn't it? He he published it afterwards in 2021, but he'd had it written and ready to go in like late 2019. That is And then COVID hit and obviously him and agents and publishers were all like, oh, let's let's give it a year. (laughs) (laughs) But it is spot on about a lot of things, including the blaming of racialized people for a virus. Yes. And I thought that was really strong and really good and really well depicted. Yeah. And, you know, all talk about the N95 masks and, you know, people social distancing and businesses closing and all of that yeah. was yeah. all really good. Yeah. But and the- also when Secunda sees sick people, he really goes in on how ugly they are. Like yeah. a lot. A and lot. it's because it, I think that the point is that it's a, it is such, it is a disgust a disgusting disease. And that whereas with COVID, I mean it was disgusting in that people were coughing and sneezing, sneezing and so on. But the the damage was all internal, whereas this is very much an external uh mm. disease. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's complicated. I mean disability politics wise, I sometimes I don't love this. Like it seems like people are getting disfigured. Mm. as moral punishment yes absolutely. i'm not a fan of that i don't love that about Mm. this book Mm. i found that you know um a bit much but also i understand because it's a direct descendant of mesopotamian mythology Mm. and you know there is that element to you know like Mm. the plague god and Mm. this is his curse and this is his sickness and it's ugly on purpose like i I do get that i thought that the way that that secunda and bellet interact is really nice in terms of secunda is actually the more emotional of the two of them they're both grieving they both have big losses in their lives but secunda is just a little bit more used to it um and he has a lot of patience for bellet's reaction to her own grief which i think is really beautiful and there's this great bit i'm not going to spoil the ending but there's great bit near the end where Bella asks him to turn away so that she can cry because she can't cry if he's looking at him and he's like, I could do with a cry too. Mm, and I thought yes. that was great. Bella is my favourite character. Is she? And I would like to know about her backstory as well. Yes. Because she is, you know, when she's first introduced in uh, as a new student at um, at Sipunda's school, she's like a really, yeah, she's, he, he immediately bristles on to her because it's this idea that oh you should be friends because you're both from the same country yeah yeah but we're nothing alike and then also that she's uh while she has had the privilege of being brought up by you know an endlessly wealthy goddess yes she's also a refugee Mm -hmm. and has had clearly had really really difficult things in the past and and knowing that her mom will outlive her and knowing that her mom or assuming that her mom will outlive her, but knowing that um, her, her mom, her mom has kind of adopted her through a sense of duty. Yeah. She's, Mm. she's adopting these war orphans to try and make up for the fact that she is the goddess of war. And I think that that, that's 
uh, that's really very interesting. So yeah. I would have liked to have known, you know, when and how she's picked up and, you know, a bit a bit more of that. But then... I mean, I love the bits. We, one of my other favourite bits is when we get a flashback into um, Ishtar at war. Yeah. Um, where she sort of lets Sikanda look into her eyes and he yes. sort of nearly... It's like the bit in the fourth she Indiana Jones it. film where he, she, the, you look into the skull and you get all of the knowledge in the world and it sends yeah. you mad kind of thing. and. And we just get this little passage of various wars throughout history. So we have a sort of like, I think, the Battle of Troy and then her tack- single-handedly tackling bomber planes during yes. the Blitz. And, and yeah, that, that, that felt like really lovely writing. It feels like maybe, yeah, that would be something that a Bellet story would mm. would give you more of as well. Well, thank you both. It's been an absolute delight. Um, how can we find you online? How can um, they find us online, Matt? Shall I do it? Yeah, go on. Yeah, <laughs> we're at Even the Trunchbull on Instagram and at Trunchbull Pod on Twitter, and you can email us at Even the Trunchbull at gmail dot com. And I will put all of those links in the show notes. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. This has been loads of fun. Thank you. It's been, it's been absolutely great. delightful. Well, thank you for listening to episode 30 of Fantasy Book Swap. You can follow me on Twitter at Fantasy Swap, on Facebook at Fantasy Book Swap, or email fantasybookswap at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to Steve Vapor Trails for production assistance and to Jack Sadler Johnson for the use of his beautiful track bliss please do rate and review if you can as it helps to satisfy my vanity (laughs) until next time bye. bye bye thank you